Thank you, Amy. I'll try not to cry, too. <clears throat> We're beginning our series of Lenten messages when we follow and try to make meaning of Jesus' journey to the cross. We've chosen for our theme for these messages spiritual practices. Those behaviors, spiritual behaviors that Jesus engaged in in a repetitive fashion that seem pretty central to his success in accomplishing his mission, and that he invited us into as well. And so, as a part of launching the series, I want to bring you in to how my morning often starts. I look at the beginning of my morning not as when I open my eyes, nor as when I practice personal hygiene, nor even the aroma or first sip of my morning coffee, but I really think that my morning begins when I hear this. So I try to begin most of my days with a time of meditation, quietness, contemplation, prayer. Uh, often my wife and I are together. We started, as people have done for centuries, with a sound, a bell, a gong. My wife, if she's with me, she tends to veer towards a, a practice of emptying, emptying herself of thoughts and concerns, things that have happened over recent days, as a way of finding herself and finding God. My spiritual practice is this accumulation of kind of quirks and oddities that have become meaningful to me that I just do sequentially. So for example, there's a prayer called the Jesus Prayer. It's very simple. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It comes from ancient Christian Eastern practices. And people pray it repetitively again and again and again. Mine has morphed. <laughs> into things that are meaningful just to me. For example, I will start, Lord, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Did we get the sound right? Okay. Jesus, anointed one of Nazareth, born of God, walking on the water, have mercy on me, a sinner. So I'll say that, and I have others that are similar to that. I'll do a couple of times in a row. They help me to perceive Jesus, make a connection with Jesus, bring Jesus into my awareness. I will then uh, go into a practice of gratitude. And it can be really brief, just remembering something good that happened yesterday, a long time ago, perceiving that experience of goodness, finding Jesus in it. Jesus, where were you when that happened? And then saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing about this goodness in my life. So having perceived Jesus, having a sense of the kind intentions of Jesus towards me, I will then be prepared for the next part of my prayer practice, which is what I want to offer to you today, invite you to consider for yourselves. It goes something like this. Given Jesus that you're present, that your intentions towards me are kind and good, that you love me, help me to know myself. Specifically, Jesus, I come to you 
full of this package of insecurities, immaturities, brokenness, badness. Help me with you here see these things in myself. Because Jesus, these are the kind of things that are going to get me in trouble as I go through my day. I'm going to live out of these immaturities, out of these insecurities, out of these kinds of brokenness. They're going to cause me to react to people in ways that I ought not react. Specifically, they're going to cause me to get into an argument with my wife. I'd rather avoid that if I can. So Jesus, given that you know me, that you see these things, and that you love me, help me to receive that. Help me to receive your love, knowing me completely as you do. It produces a remarkable effect on me, this specific prayer practice. I can pretty much correlate my leaning into this with a decrease in producing trouble and harm in the world around me as I go through my day. And so I want to lean into it a little bit, both a passage where I think Jesus is describing what he's invited me into, and a specific way it's manifested in my life in a way that I found surprising, because it's revealed to me how deeply embedded in systems I am that produce a way of relating to the world that I think Jesus would free me from. So Jesus describes what I think I'm experiencing about midway through what we've come to call the Manifesto on the Mount. It's also called the Sermon on the Mount, but that seems a bit tepid. Because in this message... Jesus describes a series of instructions, principles, values for life, all of which are united by the degree to which they cut against the grain of what it means to be human, right? They call into question fundamental aspects of human nature that we engage in without thinking. So here's this one. This is from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 begins, do not judge. So right there, we're in trouble. Right? Come on, Jesus. <laughs> Give us something that we can do. <clears throat> do not judge. He goes on. So that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make... Should I move this down? Okay. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. So it sounds nice, right? Because I think we're talking in kind of eternal terms here. The God judgment, the God evaluation. Jesus saying, if you want to avoid a bad outcome in this thing, the God judgment or assessment of you, if you want to avoid God's scrutiny of you, just don't do it to other people. It's almost too simple in its formulaicness, right? If I don't judge others, God won't judge me. If I don't condemn others, God won't condemn me. If I don't do this kind of scrutiny of others, I'm free. That's a pretty good deal. But Jesus goes on to provide a metaphor that describes why it's difficult. 
Why, Jesus says, do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? And here by neighbor, I think we can interpret that liberally. Just anybody who's in front of you, right? An other, a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, a partner, a child, a parent, a co-worker. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, peer, child, parent, spouse, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So for you and I, as we attain to be this thing called an adult, a part of what it means in society for many, 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 many of us to stay standing as an adult is that you've gone through some program of training where you have gained expertise more than most of the people around you that equips you to find flaws, defects, blemishes, weaknesses, deficiencies, diseases in the person in front of you and having identified that thing to name it and then tell them how to fix it. Right? This is all the healthcare professions. Doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, dietitians, exercise instructors, life health coaches, counselors, therapists, teachers. We move beyond our personal selves, your auto mechanic, your plumber, the contractor you invite to fix your home, landscaping architect. Standing as an adult in our culture means that you have gone through some program of training whereby you come into expertise that equips you to find the deficiencies in others and tell them how to fix it. <laughs> and here's Jesus saying, yeah, I want you to take that thing that's so hardwired into your culture and society and instead focus it on yourself, right? And most of us just say, no, thank you. That's... Not going to earn me much money, and it's really not going to be very pleasant. In spite of this, and perhaps because it's so against the grain, I and many of others have actually found it to be helpful in a particular way. If I engage with this, and Jesus isn't the only one who says it, but I think he says it in a particularly helpful way, what I find is that if I do look at myself, in the way that Jesus is inviting or asking, I see how my past affects me now in ways that I'm often unaware of, specifically how past wounds, hurts, injuries from people cause me to anticipate the same from people now in ways that are unfair to the people in front of me, right? So if, for example, making something up in junior high, I was often left out of the party by these people who were supposed to be my friends, and so I was alone on a Saturday night. I come to anticipate now with people who are supposed to be my friends that they're going to leave me out, that they're not being truthful with me. And so I, in an anticipatory way, pull back from relating while vilifying them as betrayers. Right? Or if I've been harmed by people who were supposed to care for me, who had authority, who had position in life, I anticipate the same now. 
And so I don't just pull back. I project onto these people badness. I'm mean to them. I produce harm. I judge them. Right, so this instruction has been helpful to me in perceiving that propensity of mine to misperceive people around me in ways that are often harmful and unfair to them because of what's come to me from my past. But what I've experienced recently as I've leaned into this as a prayer practice, as I've encountered Jesus knowing me and loving me, felt comfortable with that, reassured by that, is Jesus taking this deeper into what I would call logs of the system that have been more deeply embedded in me because of the culture that I live in, how that's caused me to misperceive both myself and the people around me in ways that are somewhat undoing. So here's an example. My wife and I are with a couple who we're good friends with at the end of a long day. We're having a conversation, right? It's been kind of a stressful day, complicated interactions across the course of the day, where I felt myself having to be careful about what I was saying and how I was saying it because of how it might affect the people in the room, who might or might not be offended, how they then might interact with each other. And truthfully, it had been, been like a few days of this. So I'm with my wife and we're with friends and I'm feeling like, yeah, I'm just done with that. I want to be free. I just, I just want to say what I want to say, how I want to say it and not have to worry, not have to monitor, not have to be careful, and so I do. <laughs> right, when it's my turn to talk in the conversation, I'm just loose. I'm letting it go. Some people might call it ranting. <laughs> multiple times in multiple ways. <laughs> and our friends head off, and my wife and I go to bed, and I'm just feeling so good. <laughs> right? It's just, that was just, I'm within myself, like, oh, that just felt so good. I didn't have to be careful. Wish I could be like that all the time, right? So I don't remember, it's like the next day, I think, and my wife and I are chatting something, blah, 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 fill the car up with gas, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, she says, <laughs> <laughs> you know, last night, you seemed, I don't know what you thought, a bit loose to me. <laughs> but you were pretty free and easy with what you were saying. I don't know, you might want to have thought a bit more about how what you were saying might affect our friends. I don't know if they would have quite understood <laughs> what you were feeling or where that was coming from or if they would have shared your sentiments. So I'm feeling, you know, a bit back on my heels. I don't remember how I responded to my wife in the moment. But I'm telling a friend about this experience a couple of days later. I'm relating this, you know, this conversation and my wife's response to this friend of mine. And my friend says to me, she, she's also a woman, <laughs> she steps for a moment out of just kind of friend talking back and forth into woman talking to a man mode. <laughs> and she says, I can't speak on behalf of all women, though I think she kind of is. <laughs> I can't speak on behalf of all women, but channeling your wife and speaking for myself, there's never a moment from the, for us, like from moment one, we are trained to be careful. We are trained to pay attention. 
We are trained to monitor what's going on with all the people in the room, how what we're saying is affecting them, how they're interacting with each other. There's never a moment where we're free from that. What you think you should have as a man never occurs to us as even a possibility to consider or contemplate. <laughs> so I'm feeling a bit back more on my heels. This then comes up in my prayer time, right? In my morning prayer time. So yeah, it's this interaction package in a conversation that comes from my prayer time. It's a bit complicated. But I'm remembering this, and Jesus is there. Jesus is coming to me. Jesus is perceiving me feeling kind of angry. Like, I don't want to be controlled. Jesus is feeling me pushing back. And I see Jesus. You know, we're doing this thing together. But what's right behind it is Jesus seeing my insecurity, my anxiety. Jesus seeing me and like, you know, if I put an age on it, I'd be like nine years old. You know, with that degree of social maturity. Jesus seeing I don't know how to do what my wife does. Jesus seeing me perceiving that'd be really hard. That'd take more effort and energy than I have. That would require a lot of learning. I don't have sort of that in the, right in the back that I can call forward. You know? It'd be like being born again. Right? Having to do this thing that I can't do. And so in it all is packaged my awareness that I have this way of acting in the world, of perceiving others and of perceiving myself that is a part of my being a male, a man, in a patriarchal society that gives me privilege because of that, that I enjoy and that I am loath to give up because I don't have something behind it, because I don't know what to do, because it would take too much to learn how to do what my wife and this other friend does. Right? It's of the moment in a lot of ways for us right now. You've heard my wife talk about her emergence from what it means to be a woman advancing in a man's world. Some of you are here when she told this story of me signing on the bottom line what it should have been her. The audible gasp in the room as this church became a real thing, but only because they needed a man to sign the document and instead of her, it was me. And we've done this together. Like, we've danced together. I've been her champion all along. And we've fought against the system. But as I've come into contact with this aspect of this systemic log in my eye, <laughs> I realize I benefit from it, too. Right? As much as we try to deflect and demur... It just is a cultural thing that when we're together encountering somebody, looking at us for the first time as leaders of this thing, it is so natural to look at me, to see me as the one, to ask me, how do you do it? How do you pastor and do the other things that you do? And we know the answer, well, it's actually her that does it. <laughs> right? She's been the motive force, the center of this thing, the one doing the day-to-day -day work for 20 years. But I get the benefit of this artificially inflated self that I find in this moment I am loath to give up. It's not easy just to let that go, 
right? And I think that's a part of why this instruction is so difficult to put into place, because it's not just that when you take the log out of your eye, you see how you've been misperceiving others, and because of those misperceptions harming them, you see yourself, right? And if yourself has been artificially inflated by a systemic log of privilege, you are less than what you thought you were. And there's no way around that. Nobody wants to see themselves as less than what they were. It's why social transformation only happens when the oppressed rebel, when they have enough strength. It's not because... Those who are artificially inflated by the system say, oh yeah, we'll give it back. We're done, this isn't true, we shouldn't be behaving in this way, right? And it's not just because those who are artificially inflated by the system like the power, it's that we don't have anything behind it. We don't have an identity B that we can slip into. We're being born again, which is horrible. It takes a long time. It's uncomfortable. Right? I've thought about this uh, in relationship to John the Baptist and Jesus. <clears throat> there are these two people who are born about the same time. They're related to each other. <laughs> they come back together about 30 years down the road. But the path that they take to get there produces these profoundly different packages for godness. Jesus is this guy who, when he emerges on the scene, is kind of obscure. Like, nobody gets it. They don't see in Jesus a representation of godness, a packaging for a God being. Right? They kind of say, he was a carpenter's son. He just hung out in these small towns in the hill country. John the Baptist, uh, <laughs> by contrast, at some point joins this weird, fringe, intense religious sect he lives out in the wilderness. He wears strange clothing. He eats a weird diet. And then he says things. He's loud and aggressive and antagonistic and God. Rawr. And people go, yeah, he's the prophet. Right? The packaging advances John as the one to pay attention to. And so Jesus and John have to do this really intentional activity of saying, no, it's not me, it's him. I must become less so that he can become greater. Because that's the truth. Right? And so I'm in my prayer practice, and Jesus is seeing this and anticipating what it will feel like to me to live in reality, which is diminished from the fiction. And then even my living in reality could be unsettling to others who you know, sort of embrace the same fiction. Right? We live in a system. We all embrace the fictions. We all wrestle to emerge from them. But it is in that moment where Jesus is with me and says, I see you and I know you and I love you that I can settle into it. And I get, so I hear how you, you could make the case that this is kind of pathetic, right? You need God to help you <laughs> Emerge from what wasn't yours to begin with. Right? <laughs> I hear that. It's just true. Right? For all of us, it is hard to emerge from the artificially inflated 
identities that we have without help because we don't have something to fall back on. And so for me, I fell back on God, on Jesus, Jesus knowing me, Jesus' love for me. And I begin to see, I begin to anticipate what's going to come at me during my day so that I can be ready for it and not respond out of my triggering or insecurity. I begin to be able to let go of what wasn't mine to begin with And more than that, I begin to see the possibility of a community of people who, bathed in the love of Jesus, experience the freedom of truthfulness. Like all of us together, none of us living fictions, none of us misperceiving other people and producing harm because of it. Right? But all of us living from this place of the truthfulness of God loving us just as we are just as you are, just as I am in this moment today. So that's my offering for a prayer practice this morning. Why don't you stand ask the band to come forward as we shift towards communion, musical worship together. I'm just going to ask God to visit us for a moment. So put yourself in a prayerful place if that's a thing for you. God, would you help us see our true selves? Jesus, as we do this, help us to know that you love us through and through, that the foundation for being able to live truthfully and honestly with humility and in freedom is just your absolute knowing of us and in that your love for us. Let that be a thing that transforms how we engage with the systems that have shaped how we see ourselves and how we see the world to bring us freedom from that. So we give you this moment, Jesus. Amen. So I invite